If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Our passage of Scripture today and our sermon in our continuing series, The Spirit, the Church, and the World, as we look at the Holy Spirit as He works on people to establish the church to reach the world for Jesus. In the book of Acts, we go through. Uh, friends, this may be the longest single passage of Scripture I've ever preached because you've got chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, and you've got chapter 7, verses 1 through 60. So you've got 75 verses of Scripture that we will not read all of today during our sermon. We will make mention of those and we'll read those that are important. But the sermon today is entitled Stiff-Necked. We think about the phrase stiff-necked, it means being stubborn. Most often we think about being stubborn in the negative sense of things. Somebody that is unmoving, inflexible, rigid, obstinate, adamant. But stiff-necked, or excuse me, stubborn, can also be defined in a positive sense. Somebody that's determined, or persistent, tough, tenacious, single-minded. Isn't it interesting, however, that when we think about somebody being stubborn, it's always that they're stubborn about something that they're wrong about, but we always happen to magically be right? Hmm, says something about us, doesn't it? Well, if you uh, don't have your copy of God's Word, remember uh, you've got probably a smartphone on you or a tablet, the Bible app in there. The Bible app has a events tab down in the bottom right, and that events tab you can click and see all our sermon outlines there. They'll be on the screen for you as well. And a reminder that we are a church of families, and we've got lots of children, but our nursery folks are available for you if you need them at any time. And so we're glad you're here together to worship with us. Let's look at our Scripture Memory Verse of the Month before we get to our key passage today. That Scripture Memory Verse of the Month comes from our passage next week we'll preach, and let's read it together. Acts 8, 4. Those who had been scattered preached the Word wherever they went. Acts 8, 4. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we'll study that one next week, but there's an idea in that one that wherever we're at we should be declaring your truth, that we should explicitly say words from Scripture and explicitly talk about our relationship with your Son, Jesus, our Savior, but that we should also live a life that demonstrates that. So God, as we take up this story of Stephen today, we pray that in the midst of this long passage in which he recounts the history of your people, Israel, we would see principles that apply to us today in modern-day America. We're thankful that your word is timeless and that you'll speak to us by the very same spirit that you use to fill and inhabit Stephen and empower him to preach the gospel to the very Sanhedrin that uh, put Jesus to death. So, God, we ask these things now in humility. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And everybody said, Amen. We're going to see two types of faith today. One is that of Stephen, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And because he was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, he had a living faith that gave him spiritual power and insight. The second type of faith we'll see today is one that's full of rules and rituals, that of the Sanhedrin. These guys had a deep faith, but theirs was about control at this point. And really led them to spiritual blindness. And even in our sanctuary today, we have some of us that have a living faith. 
And we have others of us that have a faith that's about rules, that's really a dead faith. And many of us are somewhere in the middle on a continuum. So when I think about preaching a passage of Scripture today and I see these principles at work, I'm like, yes, we got to preach the entire passage of Scripture because, yes, all of us need to hear this even today. So there's four major points on your outline today, and the first three are about Stephen, and the last one is really a concluding point for us. So let's talk about that first one about Stephen. Point number one there today is Stephen's depth of Christian character. Stephen's depth of Christian character. Now, we'll take that from verses 8 through 5, but you remember back to last week. If you weren't here, I'm going to read it for you. Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Acts chapter 6, verse 5, when it describes Stephen as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. In the list of the first men set aside as deacons in order to serve the church, to keep the church from being division in the church, and that was two weeks ago, excuse me, I wasn't here last week. Acts chapter 6, verse 5, it describes him a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. But look at verse 8, Acts 6, 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. So he was full of faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit, and that led him to be full of grace and full of power. When you're that kind of full, look at what happens in your life. Go on in verse 8. Did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Not hidden, but among the people where anybody could see. He did great wonders and miraculous signs. This was somebody like you or me. This was somebody who had been set aside as a deacon, but somebody, because of his walk with Jesus, was so full of the power that he could do miracles. Verse 9, opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, verse 10, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Stephen was so full of the Holy Spirit and had so walked with Jesus as his Savior that even though he was a regular dude, these uh, learned people couldn't stand up against the way that he argued in defense of Christianity. Verse 11, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen, brought him before the Sanhedrin, the very Sanhedrin that conspired to put Jesus to death. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place or against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to all of us. What they're doing is accusing Stephen of the three biggest sins in the Jewish world at that time. The first one being blasphemy. He blasphemed God. The second one being opposition to the temple and its symbolism of their faith as Jewish people. And the third one being opposition to the law, the rules and the rituals that they followed as Jewish people. And so they leveled all three of these charges against them in about two sentences. I mean, they did a pretty good job here. This is some serious business. But look at verse 15. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. Was Stephen fretting? Was Stephen anxious? Was Stephen just chomping at the bit, ready to argue with these guys, yelling or screaming at them? And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen 
was at ease. Stephen was at peace. There was no fear. There was no worry. There was no anxiety. The depth of his Christian character described in verse 5, full of faith and full of Holy Spirit. Described in verse 8, full of God's grace and power. The depth of his Christian character made a difference in who he was, even against a body of people that very soon, well, we'll get there. The question on your first point there is, how does my character show? In your life, how does your character show? Character counts, but character also shows, and it shows in your face. And if you think it doesn't show in your face, just ask us, we'll tell you. I mean, yeah, you know, we think we got our face going on. We talk about a poker face and stuff like that. No, no. We can tell when your disdain or You've got hopeful when you're fearful or when you're confident, when you're anxious or when you're full of faith. You don't have the poker face you thought. But Stephen, as accredited, is full of faith and Holy Spirit, full of God's grace and power. And he performed these miraculous signs. And in the midst of these accusations, he didn't argue. He waits with a face like an angel. I wonder what's going through his mind. What he's saying to him praying to God by that same Holy Spirit that has given him miraculous power. How does my character show? Well, in the midst of difficulties, our character shows more than others. We can keep it together when everything's okay. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Great. Good to see you, man. But when we get squeezed, it shows what's going on in life. You've heard me ask before, and I'll ask it again. When you squeeze a lemon, what comes out? Lemon juice, when you squeeze you, what comes out? Does Jesus come out? Does faith come out? Does joy come out? Does patience come out? Name any of those fruits of the Spirit. Do they come out when you get squeezed? Stephen, getting squeezed, has the face of an angel. Sanctification, that process of becoming more like Jesus through a lifetime, takes a lifetime. So don't get down on yourself and don't let the devil beat you up because you just got squeezed this morning or you got squeezed this week and you acted less than Christian. And especially if you've already asked God's forgiveness for that or anybody you sinned against, you've asked their forgiveness. Don't let the devil bring back that false guilt and shame on you. And don't let the devil shame you for who you are in Christ right now because you're not like Stephen in the Bible or you're not like that person you know and admire and respect because they're a paragon of the Christian faith. You're not there yet. What you do is ask God to continue to work in you, to change you. You can't fake it. You can't phone it in. You can't cram for it because you procrastinated. It's a process of a love relationship with Jesus day in, day out, over time that changes you to make you like Jesus so you have character like Stephen. Let's move on in our passage of Scripture, the second major point in your outline, and that's Stephen's defense of the Christian faith. Now, I call it Stephen's defense of the Christian faith, but you'd read it and you'd go, well, wait a second. He's talking about Judaism. He's talking about Israel. Aha. Uh-huh. There's some things we're going to learn from Stephen, and we'll apply those lessons in our application question at the end of this point here. But let's just take a minute here. Now, remember, there were three major accusations against him. Blasphemy against God, standing against the temple or opposing the temple and standing against the law. And interestingly enough, using some different major aspects of their Hebrew history, the story of Jews, Israelites, whatever term you want to use to call them, 
he deftly addresses each of these while recounting their shared history. I mean, it's a masterful defense. And he's, again, full of grace and full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom and full of, in my opinion, rhetorical power. I mean, this guy had it down, right? Let's read Acts chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? So remember, he's been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been doing miracles. Folks trump up charges against him, get false witnesses against him, seize him, haul him into the Sanhedrin, the very Sanhedrin that conspired to put Jesus to death, and they stand him in the witness stand with all these people gathered around him. And the high priest asked one question, are these charges true? And then he launches into this recounting of Hebrew history that if you just look at it at the surface, you go, okay, I read about that in the Bible. I learned about that in Sunday school, yada, 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 whatever, Stephen, until we get to the end part. But if you read deeper and you think about what he's saying, you see that he is addressing each of those three charges, blasphemy, the temple, and the law. Read with me in verse 2, at least there. He says, to this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. He was a Jewish person. He's addressing them as Jewish persons. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. They're going, okay, yeah, we know that. And it's our father. I'm with you. I am a Jew like you are, he's saying. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Stephen, from the very beginning of his address, is pointing to where he's going. The God of our father left where he was at, went to where God said go, and oh, by the way, guys, I'm going to take you there. It's Jesus. You may not believe it, and I know you're angry with me because of the name of Jesus, but from the very beginning of his address, he's foreshadowing what is to come. Now, we won't go on and read the rest of those first verses there, but what we see is he talks about Abraham. And then by verse 9, he's transitioning, if you read there, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him. So he transitions to talking about Joseph, and again, he's identifying with them. Skip on down to verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, so he goes back to Abraham, even though he's now talking about Joseph. The number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, a Pharaoh, who knew nothing about Joseph, became the ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out newborn babies so that they would die. Terrible thing that all of them would remember from their history and that hate, really, despising of the Egyptian people for what they did to their Israelite people. So he goes on. He goes on in verse 20 and transitions to Moses. At that time, Moses was born. Note the phrase of Moses, and he was no ordinary child. And you know the story of Moses where he was hidden and where he went, and he was raised in Pharaoh's house, and then he defended somebody, and he ran off to hide for a while. Then Moses calls him back. The burning bush says, dude, I got a job for you. You got to go back and set your people free. And then all the plagues, and then leading them through the wilderness. I mean, an amazing life that Moses led. You come on down in verse 44. In verse 44, he switches again. And he says, our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony. So he's moving to address the temple now, right? He's addressed through talking about Moses, the law. 
And he says, It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David. So he's bringing David in again now too. He's hitting all the major people in their shared faith as Jewish people who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for uh, the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built the house of him. Verse 48, however, the Most High does not live in a house made by men, as the prophet says now. Now he's transitioning. He's saying, we know we have the temple. We're right here in it. It's all around us. We know that Solomon built it. We know that it is this history of our faith. But there's something greater that this temple points to. Pay attention to me now, guys. He's saying, verse 49, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or will, uh, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Stephen's leading them to consider that a relationship with God isn't just based in a building. It's a personal relationship that happens wherever you're at. Because God made you in His image. And wherever you're at, He desires to be in relationship with you. And then, verse 51... You stiff-necked people. Up until this point, they'd have been tracking with him. Then he calls them stiff-necked people. There's some pretty stout prophets who called the Israelites stiff-necked people in the past. Jesus referred to some folks as stiff-necked people. Now he's stepping on some toes. You stiff-necked people with your uncircumcised heart. He throws another phrase on that would immediately make them bow up and get angry. But he's telling the truth. And ears, you're just like your fathers. You resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You betrayed and murdered Jesus, he's saying to them. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels have not obeyed it. Boom. Before we talk about that a little further, let's go back and get to our question on our second point. Our question on our second point is, what can I learn from his speech? Well, we can learn that we need to know our Bible. If you're engaging your Bible every day, either by reading it or listening to it, you're going to learn it. You meditate it, you memorize on it, you write and journal about it, you're going to learn it. You come to church to hear a sermon about it. You go to Sunday school, you do Bible study on your own or in small groups or home groups, you're going to learn your Bible. It makes the greatest difference in your life. Number two thing you can learn from his speech is depend on the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace. And so in the moment when his face was like an angel before he started his defense, I imagine he was praying, saying, God... You've got to tell me the way to speak to these guys. The third thing we can learn from him is to speak to people in a way that they'll hear. This is common sense communication stuff, right? But all truth is God's truth. And so what he's doing is speaking to them out of their shared history that they will listen to him until he gets to the point when he drops the boom. And that's the fourth point. Speak the truth. Folks can smell a lie. They don't like it if you lie. They can tell if you're shading the truth. They can tell if you're not being all the way honest. They can tell if you're hiding something. So speak the truth. Do it in love, but speak the truth. Which leads us to the fifth point, because when he spoke the truth, the fifth point is land the plane. You might say it this way, bring the boom, or drop the hammer, or get to the point. 
Don't pull any punches. Don't shy away. You can use whatever figure of speech you want to use. But he brought it home, baby. He brought it home with you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your father. You always reject the Holy Spirit. I don't think he yelled at them like I'm kind of hollering at you right now. But he did. He was confrontational, yes, but how else? He was delivering to them a reasonable, truthful, connected, and honest message about God's work through their history. And we have that same Holy Spirit to speak to us and through us. So we've seen so far the depth of Stephen's character. We've seen his defense of Christianity. Let's move to the third point on our outline. Stephen's death as a Christian martyr. Stephen's death as a Christian martyr. Now, I realize I didn't read that entire passage of Scripture. I'll trust you can go back and do that on your own. But let's get to verse 54. Remember, he's just called them stiff-necked, uncircumcised hearts and ears, said they rejected, resisted the Holy Spirit, and you've killed prophets and persecuted them. They're angry with him now, really angry. And look at what their response is in verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him. A brutal death. Can you imagine? While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out. Lord, don't hold this against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. first Christian martyr, martyr is someone who dies for their faith, who dies for what they believe in. Your questions of application on that third point asks, um, what different perspectives do I see here? We'll get to that conclusion really and answer this question in my fourth point in just a moment, but we've just got to sit here for a second. Here's a man that was full of grace, full of the Holy Spirit, did miraculous signs and wonders in order to demonstrate God's love to all people. But the people he was trying to share that witness to out of love and faith murdered him to defend their faith and their view of life. Judaism versus Christianity but it was deeper than that. There's things that we can learn here which leads us to our fourth point. The contrasting perspectives of the lost to Christ followers. I use the word lost not to be offensive, but that's what the Bible used. Luke 19.10, Jesus says, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's talking about lost people. People apart from a saving relationship with Jesus. People who are not Christ followers. You might say that they're pre-Christian or pre-disciple with your positive outlook that they're going to get saved someday. That is a term that Jesus used to describe folks that are apart from him. But why would he call them lost? Well, I think it's pretty easy. They're lost without hope for eternity. 
They're lost without a saving relationship with Jesus. They're lost without the Holy Spirit to guide them through life. They're lost without a life-giving relationship of a church family and other Christ followers. They are lost, separated from God, eternally destined to hell. Unless we say something. We're contrasting the perspectives of lost folks to Christ's followers. And let's look, that first one there is they were anger-filled versus spirit-filled. What did it say in verse 54 and 55? They gnashed their teeth. They were furious. It says in verse 57, they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. They were just so angry with him. But he was filled with the Spirit. He looked up at heaven and he said, look, I see Jesus face of an angel. The second point there is their spiritual blindness versus his spiritual sight. They couldn't look up at heaven. They couldn't see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. All they could see was a man that they were ready to murder by stoning because according to them, he had blasphemed. The third point there is death versus life. Death versus life in verse 58. They dragged him out of the city. They began to stone him. While they were stoning them, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knows he's got eternal life. Even though his physical body is going to die a horrific, gruesome death, being stoned by people that can see his face and hear him crying out if he's crying or whatever they're doing. He sees Jesus and he's got eternal life. The Bible says it's destined for man to die once and after that to face judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. Everybody is going to die. The statistics on death are pretty impressive, right? One out of every one people die. You're going to die. Every person you know is going to die. And therefore, if we're going to face an eternal judgment, we've got to be ready. And we've got to share the gospel truth that Jesus saves sinners with everyone we know in order that they might be ready. Which leads us to our fourth point. What we see here is hate versus love. These men acted out of hate and anger towards him. He fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. His final breath, his last words we have recorded are words of forgiveness, words of grace. He loved, though they hated. So I've got two application questions for us to conclude our sermon today. And the first one is this. Have I committed myself to follow Jesus? Has there been a point in time in your past when you trusted Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord? If you were to die today and go stand before God in heaven and God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? Most of us give an answer like, well, I try to do good things. I try to go to church. I'm better than that guy. I believe in God. All those are good answers, but they fall short. It's by grace you're saved, through faith, not by works, doing good things, being better than that guy, going to church, any of that sort of stuff. It's 
by God's grace through faith. So the answer to your question is because I've trusted Jesus as my personal Savior and Lord. We go back to the things the boys and girls are going to learn at Vacation Bible School, the ABCs. A, admit to God that you're a sinner. B, believe Jesus is God's Son. C, confess Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Not because I grew up in church and my grandma used to take me, but because I personally believe that's who Jesus is, and I'm putting my faith in Him. So that's my first question to you, is have I committed myself to follow Jesus? Because here's that contrast we just looked at, those four things, hate versus love. If you're not saved, you're on the negative side of that versus the positive side of that, even though you might act nice most of the time. Let's get to our second application question. This one might hurt a little more. You might be a believer in Jesus. You might be saved. But do I act like I'm lost or do I act like I'm saved? If somebody were to look at your life, other than the fact that you're sitting here on Sunday morning or watching right now online, if they were to look at your life where they say, yeah, that guy's a believer in Jesus. Yeah, that lady's a follower of Christ. Or they say, I'm not so sure about that person. If anything, I think they're a terrible hypocrite because they act like this, but then they say things like this, and I'm a little confused, and I'm not going to have anything to do with that person. That's where we mess up, folks. We're followers of Jesus. We come to church faithfully, yet we haven't spent enough time with Jesus one-on-one, day in, day out, to develop that sanctifying relationship that makes us more like Jesus over time. And so we look and act and think a whole lot like the world rather than like Jesus. So when we see in these final verses of our scripture today, these heinous, horrible men throwing stones at a man with a face like an angel and Stephen, which one of those people do you act like? Are you the one that walks close with Jesus and is full of the Spirit? Are you the one that hates other people and acts in anger and pride and arrogance to defend you. We need to pray about that. Join me. Our Father in heaven, it's hard to land a sermon this way. It's hard to be confronted with truth like this. To imagine even though we put on our Sunday face and most of the time we're a good person, that there still might be some sinfulness lingering within us. And we have our moments where we act like the lost or the world, even though we may be saved. So God, I'm praying for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, like I pray for me, that whatever area in our life that we have not committed to you and confessed to you as sin, that we do that right now. We know, God, that you're faithful and will forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You remove our sins as far as the east is the west, and that's infinite So we thank you, Father, that you've forgiven us. But it may be that we need the accountability of another Christian brother or sister. And I pray that you'd speak those words by your Holy Spirit to us now. And even as I say amen, we might walk across the aisle and confess our sin one to another. And that you would bind us together with that person to hold us accountable, to encourage us, to help shepherd us, to overcome the sinful habits we struggle with. And God, I also pray for the person here today or the person that's listening online that doesn't have a saving relationship with Jesus. They know they're lost. They know if they were to die today, 
and stand before your judgment seat that they would go to hell, that they would make that decision today. Whatever arguments, whatever objections they have would melt away because of the power of your love and the Holy Spirit acting upon them now. God, may we all be obedient to you as we hear your voice now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.